Again, my name is Marshall, and I'll be teaching on the passage that uh, Jason just read for us. Would you pray with me before we look at this passage? God, we come in on uh, a newly chilly day, and that reflects some of our hearts. We are cold to the things of you. We are cold to those around us, even to those we love most. Others of us, God, come in harried and hassled with the busyness of the season. Others come in singing hymns, praising you, thankful. Others come up and weighed down by burdens, concerns, people we love, our own health. Wherever we come from today, God, I pray that your word would speak, that you would speak words even as this text teaches us of life and abundance. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, we started this sermon series. We're doing this two-part sermon series we're calling Amazing Grace. And part one was the life of Jacob. That's where we were the kind of the first half of the fall, the life of Jacob. As Ralph Davis calls him, Jacob is God's rascal. I love that. Uh, now, the reason we start with Jacob is Jacob starts as this profoundly unattractive character in person. I mean, he is a snot-nosed, sniveling, passive-aggressive younger brother. He steals from and cheats his older brother. He lies and deceives his dad, and then he tries to cheat his father-in-law and then slinks away in this kind of passive-aggressive, pathetic manner. He just comes across as we meet him as a weak, not just immoral, but maybe amoral person. But God in his grace gets a hold of Jacob, changes who he is, literally changes his name, but changes his character, brings him back to his home. Jacob had been in exile. He brings him back to his home, leads Jacob to make peace with his aggrieved brother, and changes his life. By the end of his life, Jacob is able to take, has enough sense of depth of character has enough gravitas that at the end of his life he can literally pick up his hand and lay it on the shoulder of the most powerful man in the universe, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and bless him. That's a long way from a rascal, like the passive-aggressive snot-nosed, right? He has been changed to this person of depth and gravitas and of grace. It'd be like if God got a hold of, and I'll try to be generational here for older folks if God got a hold of Weird Al Yankovic uh, or Kim Kardashian, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, maybe for the old, uh, uh, Pete Davidson for some of the younger, somebody who just is kind of a lightweight, just kind of a silly person, and over the course of their life grabs hold of them by grace and changes that person, makes them a person of substance in death. So at the end of their lives, they're able to lay their hands on the equivalent of maybe a President Xi of China, a very massively powerful person to lay hands and to bless a powerful pagan king, a changed life. There's a couple lessons about the life of Jacob that we've seen as we've gone along. First, change is hard. Life change is hard because God loved Jacob. He suffered. He made him suffer. He led him into struggling and suffering so that he would be refined. Another thing about the life of Jacob is, well, change takes a long time. It takes a long time to become who you are called to be. For Jacob, it took, took a lifetime. 
But what the story of Jacob does not really tell us is how Jacob changed. We see it, but what happened? Which is to ask the question, how do people change? How do I change? How do you change? Now, the book of Romans that we're studying in the second half of our Amazing Grace series, the book of Romans is widely regarded as the clearest, most direct, most full statement of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we saw in the first five chapters, the first five chapters are how we as broken people, sinners, are made right with the Holy God. We are justified by grace through faith. We're made right with God. That is Genesis, I mean, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Romans 1 to 5, how we're made right with God. But then as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul, the author of Romans, he turns the page to Romans chapter 6. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 are about how we grow as Christians, which is to say how we are changed, how people change. So how do people change? How does gospel change work? Now, again, I said this last week. I'll probably say it most weeks. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're not sure what you believe, if you're here investigating, this is a great chance for you to hear Jesus speak to his people through the Apostle Paul, through preaching uh, about their ethics, about their morality. So this is a message really it's designed for Christians, but it's a great chance for you to overhear, as it were, a family conversation. Because from Romans 6, what we see that gospel change, change according to the scriptures, comes by First, remembering we have a new status, who we are, knowing who we are. Second, and this is my outline, recognizing a new master, knowing whose you are. And third, accepting a new present, presenting ourselves to God. So new status, new master, new present. But first, let's look at remembering our new status, who we are. Now, this is a little bit of a rewind and replaying because what I said last week and what Paul said last week is so essential. Last week in Romans 1, 6, 1 to 14, uh, Paul is asking the question, if we are saved through no merit of our own, if, if we contribute nothing to our salvation, that's what Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are about. It's all of grace. If we contribute nothing, well, the question arises, then why don't I just do whatever I want? Why don't I continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's actually how he asked the question. And the answer that Paul gives is that you have changed. You have been, your status has been changed. You are now dead to sin, he says. Not dying to sin, but dead to sin. You have a new status. When you are united to Christ by faith, when you're united to Christ by faith, you have a new status. Last week we used the image of regime change. Like a country that is under a hostile power that is liberated by the forces of good. There is a new regime. There is a new status, a new citizenship. So the truth is that if you have placed your faith in Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, you are united to Christ. You are a different person. You're a different person, a new status. So to repeat a little bit from last week, his story is your story. Jesus' identity is your identity. To make it even more provocative, I read this this week from Sinclair Ferguson. This is a quote, we are as right, think about this, we are as righteous as Christ himself. We are as righteous as Christ himself before the judgment seat of God. Wow, that is true of you. You are dead to sin right now. That's not heaven. That is right now. <laughs> that is a new status, and I really can't give you much better news than that. Amen. And then to quote the end of uh, verse 14, which I included this week, you are, quote, under grace. 
Now, in a passage that's about fast, it's fast, a passage that's about life change, it's interesting. The first 11 verses, there's no commands. There's no statements of do this or don't do this. It's all a statement of who you are, who your, stat, who your identity is, what your identity is, who you are, okay? All that is said about life change in these fundamental first 11 verses of Romans 6 is be who you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, now, as someone pointed out to me, um, this is not the Disney version of be yourself, you know, find your inner light and just express yourself. No, it's not that. Be who you are, and this is the key phrase, in Christ. Be who you are in Christ, he the one who died to himself for the good of others. Be that person dead to sin. So Christian life, though, is about becoming, it's about becoming who you already are in Christ. But the more you realize this, you realize that sin, guilt, and shame have no, they have no, there's nothing for them with you, right? Guilt and shame have no place in your life if you realize that the regime change has happened. You are united to Christ. No guilt, no shame. Therefore, we walk in the newness of life. John Stott has a, a helpful little section in his commentary. In practice, he says, we should be reminding ourselves who we are. We need to learn to talk to ourselves. This is actually, talk, you know, it's good to talk. The Bible talks to itself. Talk to yourself. Ask questions. Don't you know the meaning of your conversion and baptism? Don't you know that you have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection? Don't you know you're dead to sin? Don't you know? Don't you know? And then you kind of gnaw on that bone until you feel it. So let me just remind you before we move to the next point. You are a new person. You have a new status, united to Christ in his death and resurrection, removed from the darkness, ushered into the kingdom of light and of joy and of hope. That is who you are today. So go live like it. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Who you are, a new status, remembering your new status. But Paul does not stop there. Remembering who you are is first, but also knows whose you are, which is to say recognize your new master. Okay, look with me at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, Paul asks the same question as, as verse 1. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, the metaphor that Paul uses throughout this passage is slavery. Now, it's a very apt uh, metaphor for the Romans. Uh, scholars estimate that one-third of the city of Rome was, was enslaved, okay? So, if you, one in three people were slaves. Okay? So they knew what slavery is. They lived in this world. Now, don't think, though, antebellum American South slavery. Uh, this is people, some of whom actually voluntarily enslaved themselves to pay off a debt. Some of them were captives from a foreign land, so it's a little bit different. There was actually a chance to get free in Roman slavery sometimes. But Paul also acknowledges, I think it's important to say in verse 19, he acknowledges that this is a less than ideal metaphor. He says, I'm speaking to you in human terms. I'm trying to explain something, but it's, it's, it's hard to explain, so I'm using this metaphor. But the argument that he is first of all making is something we talk about regularly here, but it needs to be said again and again. We are all you and me, all of us, we are enslaved to something, to someone. 
Again, verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, you are slaves of the one you obey? The way that uh, Bob Dylan sang it many years ago, you got to serve somebody. You gotta, somebody. It's got to be somebody. Someone. The way that Becky Pippert says it is this, whatever controls us, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power, she writes. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. A rather sad and contemporary example of this is, is Tom Brady. Now, Tom Brady, if you do not know, he's the quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Before he was a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, he won six, count it, six, one, two, three, four, five, six Super Bowl rings, making the argument that he is the greatest football player of all time. Then he moved to Tampa Bay, away from, the, away from the great coach Bill Belichick. And what does he do? First season, he wins a seventh ring. Nobody's even close to him. Uncontrovertibly, Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time. He is 45 years old. He is still playing. Now, apparently, earlier this year, out of regard for his family and his children, he retired. It lasted one month. He could not help himself. There's something that Tom Brady is longing for. I don't know if it's the thrill of the crowd. I don't know if it's the win. I'm not sure. But something is missing for Tom Brady. Something to which he is enslaved. This is a man that, I mean, any male in the congregation, like, this, that's the life I want. And yet, he is enslaved. So he came back to football after a month over the wishes of his wife, which led to his divorce announced two weeks ago. I watched a couple of his press conferences this week. He is a 45-year-old man wearing a jersey with a number on it. Think about that. For, my son likes to wear a jersey with a number on it. He's a 45-year-old man with a jersey. And somebody asked him, do you regret this decision? Zero regrets. Tom. Tom. Really? He is not free. He may be a billionaire. But he is enslaved to something. So the first thing is we're all enslaved to something or to someone. So let me say a little bit more about the contours of slavery to sin. Because sin is deceitful. Sin feels good. It says if you could just get a little bit more. Tom, if you could get that eighth ring. Is that going to do it? It's not going to do it. If you could just get more and more. Because here's the hidden truth. Sin wants to own you. It wants to wrap its tentacles around you and just own you. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 16. Uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrased the whole Bible. It's called the message. Verse 16, he says this, You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom, go back to football, that destroy freedom. Offer yourself to sin, and it's your last free act. Or to quote from the ESV, which is in front of you, the second half of the middle part of verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slavery to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. You see, Paul's argument is that slavery leads to more and more entrapment. Lawlessness unto more lawlessness and eventually to death. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And yes, sin does lead to ultimate death and judgment, but sin also leads to a thousand daily deaths. And if you are enslaved to anything besides God, it will 
destroy you. Let me quote from a non-Christian, David Foster Wallace, who says this. He says everybody worships. The idea is everybody worships. Everybody is enslaved. David Foster Wallace. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never, ever, you'll ever need more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. End quote. Here's some of mine. If you're enslaved to approval, other people's approval, you will be filled with self-pity, bouts of inadequacy. You will be a bundle of insecurity. If you are enslaved to beauty, it will fade, and your attempts to hold on to it will make everyone around you grimace. You see, there's a story told. It's a preacher's story. I don't know if this is true or not, but it sure is good. Um, of when, uh, I've told this story years ago, but when an Eskimo village, an encampment is uh, being prowled, there's a, a wolf prowling around, what they will do, apparently, um, is they will take a long sword, a long sharp sword, and they will coat it in some sort of blood, okay? And then they'll go and they'll stick it in the ice. The wolf will smell the blood, he will come to the knife, and he will lick it. And of course, he'll first taste that blood, but then he'll lick it more because he'll cut his own tongue. And the more that he licks the knife, the more blood there is, the better it tastes to him. He keeps licking and licking, of course, until he bleeds out, dying of blood loss. That's the way that sin works. It, it ta- what is the warm taste in your mouth that you want just a little bit more of? If you could just have it, then you'd be okay. It could very well be the seeds of your enslavement and even eventual death. Skip Ryan, who is a hero and mentor of mine, uh, I owe a massive debt to him in many ways, including uh, this sermon. He uses this illustration uh, to make the, how this works out. Imagine, let's, let's make, let's, we've talked, you know, blood, Tom Brady, let's put a little more prosaic. Imagine that you are a businessman and you are on a, tra- you're traveling and you think that you do not make enough money. You're, you're struggling financially. And so you're on this business trip and you want more money. You need more money. And so you're on this trip you, and you take your expense account and you pad it just a little bit. Not much, but your thoughts like, you know, I'm not paid enough. And my wife, she really wants this little trinket or whatever it is. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to pat. Nobody's going to notice. It's a small amount. Well, the next time, so you do it. You pad your expense account. You do it. Well, the next time, you don't think about it as much. It gets easier and easier. And you actually go right back to the place where you were that first time. You start at the end. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. So you pad your account, you're angry at your boss for not paying you, you're angry, your wife is angry at you because she wants more, your kids see you're angry, and it just infects your whole life. You see this one small thing, just one padded expense account. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness, and it just degenerates a life. You might get away with it for a moment, but it catches up. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at the time of the things which you are now ashamed For the end of those things is death. Slavery to sin leads to shame and then to death. Well, Paul, though, Paul's a good salesman. (laughs) He is a good salesman because he is going to contrast. He is going to contrast that slavery with slavery to God, or what he calls in verse 16, slavery to obedience. 
what he calls in verses 17 and 18 is slavery to righteousness. And then what ultimately in verses 21 and 20 and following, he calls slavery to God. Because what he says is slavery to God leads to holiness, to sanctification, and to life. Look with me at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, sanctification and to its end, eternal life. Or as the apostle, or as, uh, not the apostle, uh, Eugene Peterson says, be yourself, uh, be, offer yourself to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. I love that. The freedom never quits. Slavery to God leads to holiness and life. This is an echo of Jesus' teaching. When he said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. Slavery to God leads to eternal life, but slavery to God also leads to fullness, to flourishing, to abounding. It leads to life in this life. As Thomas Cranmer said in the 16th century, in his service is perfect freedom. And in the 17th century, John Owen said this, when you offer yourselves to God, I love this phrase from John Owen in the 17th century, you can see sin lying dead at your feet. You can see sin lying dead at your feet, which is to say real change is possible in this life. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying you'll never sin again. That's next week's sermon, Romans chapter 7. But there is a death to sin and a living to righteousness when you offer yourself as slaves to God where you don't walk around in sin anymore. You can know life. And when you do sin, it's not so much guilt and shame that you feel. What you feel is, I miss Jesus. I long for him. You can see sin lying dead at your feet. Slaves to God. Not only do you have a new status that you need to remember, you have a new master that you need to recognize. Now, if I stopped here, this teaching would be incomplete because Paul says more. But I actually, as I've thought about this and the people I've known, this also could actually be dangerous to stop right here. Here is what I mean. So far, what I've basically said to you is you need to change your mind. You need to think better thoughts. You need to remember that you are united to Christ. You need to reckon yourself as a slave of the king, of Jesus. Right? That's about changing your mind. But you must also not just know your new status and your new master. You must also accept a new present. Present yourselves to God, thirdly. Now, I'm playing with language just a, a bit here. Um, because I'm using the word present or the word that's spelled present in two different ways. First of all, I mean it in the sense of a gift. Look with me at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the free present of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this, this contrast. Slavery to sin, it pays a wage. You, you're owed this. And what, is the, what are you owed? You're owed death. But slavery to God is the result of a gift. Something that has been graced to you. Something that has been given to you. But this is one of those presents, though, that you are called to do something with, to really embrace it, to feel it, to experience it. My son uh, joined the Cub Scouts, and uh, that's been kind of fun. And um, 
they gave him a rocket. You know one of these rockets that you like put together and, you know, we go into the basement and we, we sanded it and we painted it and we glued it. And I'm not very good at this. It was an achievement that this thing might even fly. And so we have this beautiful rocket. And then we go join the pack, you know, the, the den. These are all these Cub Scout terms. And you're in this massive field over in Wilmette and you're supposed to shoot it off. But my son, he's got this great present, this rocket. I, it stayed together, which is a miracle. He didn't want to shoot it. I mean, all these kids like, I mean, like, you know, hundreds, some of you can't, they go so high you can't even see them. There's some of your backyards probably in Wilmette. But he had a rocket. He didn't want to shoot it. It's a gift that is meant to be used. It's meant to be shot, which brings us to the use of this second present. I want you to look with me for the word present. Now I'm not talking about present, but present. I'm pronouncing it differently. Not, not just a present like a gift, but also present. Two times, look with me, two times in verse 13, you see the word present. It's actually the same word in Greek, peristemi. One time in chapter 16, or verse 16, and then twice again in verse 19, present, 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 five times. Verse 13, do not present yourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Now, if you present yourselves to God without knowing who you are, if you just do things for God without knowing who you are in Christ, that leads to moralism or legalism, thinking that you earn something. But if you don't do this, if you don't present yourselves to God, you won't change. You see, friends, you have been united to Christ. You have a new status. And because of that, you're a slave to righteousness. We are called to offer our bodies, our members, to present them as slaves to righteousness, to God. Which is to say, there is a legal truth, an objective truth, united to Christ. But we're also called to experience that legal truth for us to be changed. I want to use some theological language real quick. Union and communion. We are united to Christ by faith. That is an objective fact. United. But we're also called to commune with Christ. Which is to be engaged in relationship. Union and communion. They go together. Last week was my birthday. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and Matt, last week was my birthday, and so a couple things were happening. First, uh, my license is due for renewal, and so I was going to the DMV, and by the way, a little public service announcement, this real ID thing's coming. If you don't have it, you can't fly after May, and so I had to take all these documents with me to the DMV to get my real ID on my uh, license renewal. And one of the documents they ask for is a marriage license, right? Okay, so I have my marriage license. It says Marshall Brown Allison. Uh, that is a fact, right? That is a, I am united to this woman in marriage, okay? That is a fact, okay? That's our union. But it's also my birthday, so after the DMV, I drive home. And there's a fire in the fireplace. She puts my favorite drink in my hand. She cooks my favorite dinner, my favorite dessert afterwards, right? There's the communion, you see, her doing those things does not make us more married. It doesn't. But it does stoke the flame. It enhances the experience. It's communion. And you see, friends, our union with Christ, what is true, leads to our communion with Christ. But it's also true that our communion with Christ leads to our experience of union. Let me put it this way. Because I love Allison, I kiss her. Because I love Allison, I kiss her. But also, I kiss her that I might love her. 
You following me? It goes both ways. Union, communion, communion, union. It's, it's not just start with your head and go to your heart and what you do, but it's also sometimes you've got to start with your heart and move to your head. It goes both ways. But not only does it go both ways, there's a negative aspect to this and a positive. Again, verse 13, do not present your members to unrighteousness, but pre do present your members to righteousness. You see, the Christian ethic for change is never do this or don't do that. It always is saying to you, this actually, Colossians 3 is a summary of Romans chapter 6. And it's always saying put something off and put something else on. There's always a positive and a negative. So, for instance, if you struggle with alcohol, the Bible's ethic is not just don't go to parties or bars where you can't handle it. It's not just don't do it. If you struggle with alcohol, it also says you don't do those things, but you also find someone who is lonely and you love them. You do something positive, you put something on. If your struggle is possessions, you just can't help yourself. Amazon, you just like, ding, you just keep clicking. You know, one-click shopping, it's the worst thing that ever happened to these people, right? You don't just get rid of Amazon Prime or, you know, restrain yourself. But when you're tempted to spend money, you actually take that money, and you don't spend it on what you want, but you give it away. You give it to somebody. It's not just what you don't do, it's what you do do. Put off, put on. If approval, maybe students particularly, you, you, you so love approval, you've got to, first of all, you've got to watch your social media intake. I mean, Twitter, I, Instagram, IG, all this will kill you, right? But you also, also find a ministry to give, to get out of your head. Put off, put on. Put off, put on. It goes both ways, and it's positive and negative. How do we change? So here's what I want to, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to try it. As you leave here today, in the next couple of days, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what is it that I'm really tempted to be enslaved? What am I enslaved to? For some of us, it's approval. For some of us, it is financial security. For some of us, it's beauty. For some of us, it's success. For some of us, it's feeling special. There's all these different things. It's a little bit different for all of us. Sin is very, it's different for all of us. But what, try to identify what is the one thing, the one thing that you're really tempted to be enslaved to, right? And then think about that thing. I know what it is for me. Think about that thing and think, I have a new status. Remember, you have a new status. You're united to Christ in his death and resurrection. But remind yourself also, you are a slave to God. And so therefore you can present your instrument, whatever it is that you need to put off and put on so that you can know this. Because friends, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You can see sin lying dead at your feet. Not never sinning again, but not walking around in it. Friends, that is the good news, the hope of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that you don't just save us, that you don't just forgive us, that you don't just offer us eternal life. You want us to know the truth, the truth that will set us free so that we might know the fullness, the abounding life now. Lord, would it be so for your glory and our good. In your son's name we pray. Amen.